We're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 5, if you have your Bibles this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 5. Ethics, to, to put it kind of simply, ethics is basically the way we view right and wrong and what we do in light of our views of right and wrong. Uh, It's the way that we live out what we believe. And one of the most unique aspects of Judeo-Christian ethics, of Judeo-Christian worldview, excuse me, is our ethics. Um, It is next to Jesus Christ himself. The way that we live is the paramount of who we are as Christians. There's no, I, don't, I can't think of any more succinct, more clear, more beautiful picture of our ethic than the Ten Commandments. Now, many of you have probably seen the 1956 classic, uh, the Ten Commandments, Cecil B. DeMille's epic. I think it's almost three and a half hours long, I believe, in runtime. Uh, Charlton Heston, this is such an iconic image that the the name of the biography, it's either, I don't know if it's an autobiography or just a biography of Charlton Heston, is called An American Moses. I mean, he gets gets the name of the book about his life uh, from this movie. That's how iconic this is. What you might not know, though, is the guy that directed this, Cecil B. DeMille, actually directed another movie called The Ten Commandments, one that occurred back in the days of silent films, 1923, he came out with his first film, The Ten Commandments. This one uh, uh, shows the story for the first part of the movie, shows the story of the Israelites being rescued out of Egypt and God giving the commandments. Then the second part is the story of two brothers, uh, one of whom isn't living in light of the commandments and the effects and uh, uh, the story from there. But in that day, uh, uh, because it was, starts off as a silent film, um, the way you tell the story, because the actors aren't speaking words, the way you tell the story is through storyboards. There are words written on the screen. Uh, in this case, it, it would be periodically some things that people are saying. Other things would be verses from Scripture that would be carrying along the story. In the introductory storyboards, Cecil B. DeMille put this, The Ten Commandments are not rules to obey as a personal favor to God. They are the fundamental principles without which mankind cannot live together. They are not laws. They are the law. That's 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 a pretty good description of what these things are. These Ten Commandments are not laws for us to follow so much as they are an ethic for us to live by, principles for us to embody. They're not merely to guide our steps, but to shape our souls. The basis of this ethic in these Ten Commandments isn't just idyllic principles or functional pragmatism. It goes much, much deeper. In this series that we're starting today, we're going to take a deep dive into these Ten Commandments. We're not so much interested in the do's and don'ts, though those will come up. We're more interested in the God that these commandments reveal. Because really, when you boil it all down, it's the nature, the character, and the attributes of God that these things teach us about. And in the process, they also teach us about us too. 
So today, we're going to put ourselves at the foot of Moses, at the feet of Moses, along with those ancient Israelites. And I think we'll find that as we come to this place where we hear the words of the law spoken to us, we'll find them just as relevant to us today as they were to those ancient Israelites who heard them way back then. Stand with me as we read from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 will be our focus this morning. Deuteronomy 5, 1 through 6, this is God's word. And if you let it, it will change your life. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time, to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Pray with me. Father, may these words have all, all, so much more impact. These Israelites that are hearing the words, they, they, they ended up neglecting it, rejecting it. Father, may it not be true of us. May we hear and be careful to do your words this morning. Use this time to mold us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This book of Deuteronomy is actually a retelling of much of the content of Exodus and Leviticus. In fact, the word Deuteronomy actually means second law. But this isn't a copy and paste job. This isn't just, uh, I, I've already told you all this, so we're just going to kind of put it together in one nice little volume so it's easy to reference. No, that's more than that. Deuteronomy is reiterating the law in the context of a covenant relationship. And that's what makes Israel, by the way, unique from all the other cultures of the world. All the other ancient cultures had their gods. This is the only culture that had a God that specifically relates with his people. None of the other cultures could say that. None of the other cultures could say that they got their laws from their God. All they could say is that some kings came up with them. This culture can say these laws come directly from our God. No other culture had a God who would enter relationship with his people. But this God does. This made them totally different from everybody else around them. And that's on purpose. God did that on purpose. Everyone else relates with one another. This is a people that relates with God. And it's obvious as you read the entire book of Deuteronomy that that covenant relationship is central to the entire book. Over and over again, God reminds Israel of the relationship they have with him. They are to follow his ways, to worship and serve only him. He will be their God and they will be his people. They are not to forget him when they get into the land, but to devote themselves wholly and completely to him. They, he promises, I will give you abundance, abundant Milk and honey, long life in the land, protection from enemies and beasts. In fact, even in verse 1 of Deuteronomy 5, we hear this call to faithfulness and obeying God's commands. Uh, verse 1 says, And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, 
the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. This relationship ought to make such a difference for the Israelites that they are to prioritize what God is about to tell them to do. And in fact, it's that relationship that Moses focuses on in the next few verses as he says these things. The Lord, our God, made a covenant with us in Horeb. Horeb is another name for Sinai. So, so in Exodus, you see Sinai. In Deuteronomy, you see Horeb. It's the same place. That same place, God made a covenant with his people. Not with our fathers, he says, did the Lord make this covenant. Now, in all actuality, their fathers were there. In all actuality, the fathers heard the words. In all actuality, the fathers rejected the covenant time and time again until that entire generation died in the desert because they wouldn't go in because they wouldn't do what God wanted them to do. They rejected his covenant. Now he says, now the covenant's to you. He's made it with you. All of us who are alive today, the Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain. Now what other people in the history of the world could say, our God talks to us face to face than the people of God? The ancient Israelites can say that. They could say God spoke with us face to face. In fact, uh, go ahead and skip to Exodus 19 in the PowerPoint. Exodus 19 sets the scene up well. God was, had instructed Moses to consecrate the people for two days and that on the third day he would meet with them. Here's what happens. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and very loud trumpet blasts so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. What a frightening sight. How scary must it have been to see this mountain looking like a volcano spewing up the smoke into the atmosphere. Imagine being there. These folks are from Egypt. They've lived all their lives in the delta of the Nile River. Just a mountain was an impressive sight. But one smoking with fire no wonder they were trembling. See, when God comes to meet with man, man cannot help but be changed by the experience. He cannot help but tremble in fear at the presence of the Almighty God. Do, do, do you tremble at the presence of Almighty God? Have you ever been in His presence? <laughs> Even the mountain and the earth trembled at God's presence. How much less can man remain apathetic and unmoved when God is so near? He doesn't, by the way, just change our attitudes by being around us. He changes us. He doesn't just affect how we feel. He affects who we are. They didn't want to go up. They were afraid. Wouldn't you be? Moses goes up. And he's up there a long time. Moses goes up and he receives these Ten Commandments. And he comes down and he brings it to him. And then he goes back up and he's up for <coughs> well over a month. 
So long, in fact, that they think something's happened to him. He must have died. But being in God's presence, he doesn't just make your knees knock, your stomach unsettled. He doesn't make your, just make your brows sweat or your hands ring. He reforms your soul, the innermost part of who you are. He makes us different. And he makes our actions different too. Look at verse 6. This is where I want to spend the most time because I think this is really the crux of what we're about to read. As we go through the rest of Deuteronomy 5 in this series, as we look at each one of the commandments one by one, and as we look at what our appropriate response is to be to what God has said, I think we need to base it in this very verse because this verse holds the key to all of it. Look what he says. God said this now. This is not Moses talking anymore. This is Moses quoting God. God says, quote, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The Judeo-Christian ethic is like a foundation on which we build our lives. Now, foundations have two components. One, the main one we see is concrete. Ethics, by its nature, must be lived, acted out, worked. God's works are the concrete of this foundation. So you've got your ethical foundation made of concrete that is the works of God. How do I know that? Look at the end of the verse. He says it in two different ways, but he's saying the same thing in both. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see, the land of Egypt was the house of slavery. And it's important to remember that because sometimes we get into the mindset that says, I wish I was back there where, where we used to be, where it wasn't so bad. It's easy to look back and idealize the past and say, that was the good time. That was the time that we, all, that, that we should go back to. And we forget the problems and the hassles and everything. That's what these people did. They're in the wilderness. They're thirsty, they're hungry, they're tired. And they say, did you bring us out here to die? And 48 hours earlier, they were crossing the Red Sea on dry ground. It doesn't even take long, does it? We look back at the past and we, 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 we always think that the grass was greener back then, but we forget the struggle. We need to remember that God has redeemed us from the house of slavery. Slavery to our sinful passions. Slavery to our own selfishness. Slavery to all the things that ran our lives. Even the good religious things that kept us from God because we put our trust in them and not in Him. We need to remember that we have been redeemed from slavery. It wasn't good then. We were shackled by heavy burden, to put it the way the hymn writer did. Neat the load of guilt and care. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is such an important event that there are at least 120 different mentions of it in the Old Testament. Do you think it mattered to the ancient Israelites that they had been brought out of Egypt? Do you think that mattered? I think it did. The prophets, it's written about in the Psalms, in poetic writings. You find it in all over the place. There's... There's remembrances of it in Daniel and Esther. When Israelites then are exiled, this was the defining moment for this people. 
This is the moment that Israel became not just a nation, but God's nation. That, that word redeem, that means bought. That means he paid a price. That means it wasn't free to God. He actually bought them out of slavery. It's the basis. This is the basis of Israel being the chosen people of God. And it's out of that basis, out of God's work that we find that we are to work. See, our, our actions should be reflective of God's actions. You see this throughout the commandments. We don't bear false witness, for example, because God doesn't bear false witness. God is not a man that he should lie. And because of that, we are not to bear false witness in our dealings with each other. It's also why we don't take his name in vain. Part of what that means is that we don't misrepresent him. Because he doesn't lie, neither should we. We don't commit adultery because God's always faithful to us. We don't treat each other with faithlessness as representatives of the God who is always faithful. His actions should be represented in ours. In fact, there's a spiritual parallel. You know how many times God says that Israel committed spiritual adultery, cheating on him by worshiping other gods? There's a reason he draws that parallel, because it's the same thing. Faithlessness to someone is just as bad as faithlessness toward God. But God is faithful, and we should be too. Paul put it this way in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. You know, a child, monkey see, monkey do, right? A child sees something, they will try to imitate it. I watched, and, and I think I've told the story before in a, in a, a long time ago, long time ago, uh, working at a VBS, helping a church, the, the church plant, do, do a VBS, and uh, all the kids are up front, and they're doing the motions to one of the VBS songs, and they are all glued toward the back, because in the back, is the pastor's wife who had taught them the song and doing all the motions. So she's doing the motions and she's smiling real big and telling them to smile and, and she's walking through and they are just trying to copy her. What a picture of what we are to be. Just, just copying God's works. We see him do it. We follow through with it. Now, that's the concrete of this ethical foundation. But you know, concrete has something else in it. It's a mixture of a few things, yes. But there's something else that makes the foundation sure. Try as we might to copy God's works, it won't work without something more. We can't just emulate his works. Just like a concrete slab needs rebar to reinforce it, we need an ethical rebar that will bind our good works together and make them firm through the test of time. And that rebar in our ethical foundation, well, that's God's character. I went to the end of verse six. Let's look at the beginning. How does he start this? What's the first thing he tells them before he gives them any commands? Before he expresses to them the good things that he's done? What's the first thing he does? He names himself. I am the Lord your God. Now, interesting in Hebrew, am isn't even there. They don't, there's not even, the word am isn't even there. It just says, I, Lord, your God. It doesn't even have to be stated. In fact, this name, uh, Lord here, in your Bibles probably has small caps or some kind of way to identify it differently. 
Is there a different font setting or something in your Bible for that? Anybody see that in theirs? Mine has it. Some Bibles have it. Some Bibles don't. It'll be small caps or it'll be something like that. That is that divine name of God, Yahweh. It's mentioned more than 6,800 times in the Old Testament. This name of God is used. That's a lot. You think God's trying to tell us something? People often say it comes from Exodus chapter uh, 4, or 3, excuse me, where Moses says, but who will I say sent me? And God says, I am that I am. Tell them I am has sent you. But that's not exactly true. You see, the word uh, to be, it's not formed like other verbs. It's a weird verb. It gets formed differently. Yahweh, that name of God, it's almost like God says, you know, you don't really have a word that describes me, so I'm going to make one up so that you'll get a sense of my character. You don't have a word that properly describes it. Your word is formed abnormally. I'm going to act like the word is formed normally and give you that as my name so that you will see that I am the way I ought to be. Your existence isn't the way it ought to be, but mine is. It's almost as if God is telling us that I am the only one who truly is everything else. Because of the fallen nature of humanity, you without me are not what you ought to be. So I'm going to give you the closest thing that you can get and let you call me by that. So when he says, I am the Lord, that's unique. We're going to talk about that more next week. But then he, he doesn't just say the Lord. Not just some Yahweh out there. Pharaoh called him Yahweh. And Pharaoh had no intentions on following Yahweh. Pharaoh was more interested in saying, no way, Yahweh. He says, I am Yahweh, your God. Not just a God, not just some God, not just somebody's God. Your God. Is he your God? Is he the one calling the shots? Is he the one sitting on the throne? Is he the one in charge? Or is that somebody else? Maybe, maybe, maybe it's you. You make a terrible God. I know because I do too. We are all crappy gods. He is not. He is God. Make sure he's you God, your God because, because that, that concrete needs more than just us doing the right works. It needs us being the right people. And the only way that happens is recognizing who God is. He calls himself Yahweh, your God, because this relationship between him and his people is so important that it forms the basis upon which every rule, every law is based. He's not just any divine character named Yahweh. He's our God, yours and mine. His character, his actions combine together to form the basic principle of our ethics. Who God is and what he has done should determine how we live. Our ethics is not based on what we do. It's not based on how we think. It's not based on our truth. There's way too much of that. It's based on who God is and what he's done. And those two things together determine how we are to live our lives. 
We don't live our lives based on how we feel. We don't live our lives based on how others treat us. We don't live our lives based on what mama said we should do or based on our upbringing or based on the societal pressures around us. We base our lives and the way that we live on who God is and what He has done. Every command of God is based in His character and in His works. Who He is, what He's done. And who He is is what we should be striving to be. What He's done is what we ought to be doing. Just as He is merciful, loving, truthful, faithful, pure, so are we to be. Just as He redeems the lost, loves His enemies, protects the helpless, gives justice to the oppressed, forgives repentant sinners, restores the broken, fulfills His promises, so should we. The way we live ought to be determined by who God is and what He's done. And I, don't, I can't think of a better model of that than Jesus Christ. We looked at him going into the desert, tempted. Did, look back at Matthew chapter 4. It's not in the PowerPoint. Look back there. Matthew chapter 4. Notice the pattern. He's led into the wilderness by the Spirit. He fasts for 40 days. Devil comes to tempt him. The first temptation is, why don't you make these stones into bread? And what does Jesus do? It is written. Where was that written? Deuteronomy 8 is where that was written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes out of the mouth of God. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him at Massah and Meribah. They, they said, why should we follow this leader, Moses? We can... We can we can go our own way. We can, we can appoint our own leaders and do our own thing and, and be perfectly fine. And God says, no, you can't. Satan shows them all the kingdoms of the world and says, all you got to do is bow and worship me. And I'll give all this to you. Just take a shortcut. What does Jesus say? He says, get out of here. <laughs> be gone, Satan. But then he says, for it is written. Anyone want to take a guess what book of the Bible this phrase comes from? Mitchell, what book? Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. Again, Deuteronomy 6, by the way. You shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. But do you notice the quotes? None of these quotes are straight up laws. None of these quotes are Ten Commandments. None of these quotes are directly, this is what you have to do or this is what you cannot do. All of them deal with who you are and how you are to live. You see, this wasn't just a list of laws for Jesus to follow. He didn't look at Deuteronomy that way. He didn't look at the Ten Commandments and the Torah as just a group, a checklist of things that you have to accomplish or you have to avoid. He saw the character behind them. He saw that these aren't just laws, but a whole ethic to live by. He saw that who God is and what He has done should determine how he lives. Now, he's cheating. He is God in flesh, okay? Thank God that he's God in flesh. But he lives out this life perfectly so we can see what it looks like to be the person God wants us to be. Now the question is, will we? Now the question is, will we live that kind of life too? Will who God is and what he has done determine how we live? Or is it just something that we 
talk about a little bit, read about a little bit, then aren't really affected by because we'd much rather do our own thing. We'd much rather be comfortable, take the easy road. Let's go along with the flow. God did not call us, redeem us from sin and death just for us to sit on the sidelines and not do anything about it. He called us to live according to his character and his actions, to become like him and to do the things that he does. He calls us to be his children. That's the basis of these Ten Commandments. Father, thank you for who you are. The God who has redeemed us from slavery to sin, slavery to self, slavery to passions and lusts and desires and, and greed and malice and envy and wrath, licentiousness and anger and jealousy. Thank you, Father, for redeeming us from all these things. Lord, would you help us live according to your character, according to your works? Would you shape us and guide us? Lead the way and we'll follow. In all these things, you do what you want to do in us. You're, you're, you're the Lord. You're the master. You're the God. Thank you for all you've done, for all you are. And may, may it make a difference in the way we live. In Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen.